following talk is from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Thanks for listening. We're going through a series, uh, both us and the Sick Up venue are going through a series on Ephesians. Ephesians was a letter written by a man called Paul. He actually is a kind of circular letter. He sent it to more than just Ephesus. But one of the churches that got a name check was Ephesus. And we're continuing in a series. So it's possible uh, we've got the, first, the little passage I'm going to read to you. We're reading three, three verses. Ephesians two nineteen to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So important when you are reading something that's pretty much 2,000 years old, written in a, a culture that's different to ours, we need to get our head around what the words mean. And, and I learned this. I, I want to share with you a, probably the most traumatic experience of my life. I was about six. Now, it was a long time ago, and the world was extraordinarily different then. Um, I lived in, in a normal sort of 1960s house. We, we grew up watching television like everybody else does, and we were fairly affluent. We had two channels. Um, I don't want to boast, but, you know, if you've got it, you have to flaunt it. Uh, we we uh, were so affluent. Actually, we had, well, my parents had a remote control, which is unusual in the 60s. Uh, they were called children. Can you turn over the uh, television for us? We dressed differently in those days. In the current climate, children dressed like small adults or in my case, like an adult. And, uh, but in those days, we dressed differently. And uh, it was normal and not weird that all little boys walked around in short trousers. It was just what you did. Girls always wore dresses. It was easier. You knew where you were. You had short, uh, you had short hair, and that's what you did. And uh, one day, uh, a day of great excitement, bear in mind that uh, we didn't travel much. Most people went on holiday in, in the U.K., but our next-door neighbor had a visitor staying with her who was American. Really exciting, because all the Americans I had seen were on television. They were glamorous, almost all of them. And it's like, I was going to meet an American. My mother brought us up very well, and we always had to be very well presented, so we all dressed up in our best clothes, and we went next door to see the American can't tell you the excitement. It's just, it's hard to imagine in your sophisticated cosmopolitan world, but in my little world, in Petswood, in the early 1960s, this was excitement. I didn't get out a huge amount. So we, we, we stepped inside and being good, um, uh, good, brought up English, polite children, my sister and I, we went in and my parents talked to the visitor. But she was American, she was friendly, she was young, and she wanted to involve us children. And I remember this so clearly. So she turned to me and said, 
do you wear pants like that to school? In my world, pants is what you wore under your trousers. (laughs) This woman had x-ray eyes. Even now, I wake up. In fact, if I was preaching in an American church, I would be insisting on a lectern. (laughs) It's important to have the same value on words. Paul had this problem. He grew up in a place called uh, Tarsus. I forgot where he grew up. He was writing to people who lived about 550 miles away from him. Now, in those days, 550 miles was a long way. It took you, the fastest way you could travel was probably by boat, and they didn't travel that fast. This was a journey of probably weeks. The people, he grew up as a Jew, worshipping God. He was writing to people who didn't know God in the same way that he did. It was different gods. They worshipped in Ephesus. There were quite a few gods, but the famous one was called Artemis or, or Diana. And he knew that the idea that he wanted to communicate was possible to be misunderstood by the people to whom he was writing. You see, he wanted to explain what God was doing in the world. He wanted to explain the significance of what the church was so that people would understand. And yet he had a problem because the word that he wanted to use was temple. Now, the Ephesians got temples. Their temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was famous. Uh, There was a guy, I appreciate the research I've done on this, but um, Philon of Byzantium. Thank you. Underwhelming. He wrote this about 200 years before Jesus. He said, I have seen the walls and the hanging gardens of ancient Babylon. I've seen the statue of Olympian Zeus. The Colossus of Rhodes, the mighty work of the High Pyramids, and the tomb of Mausolus. I've never heard of Mausolus. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus rising to the clouds, all these other wonders were put in the shade. Ephesians got temples. They had like they had like the Marks and Spencers temple. This wasn't any temple. This was a temple made by Ephesians. If Carlsberg made temples, they would make it like this temple. So what did Paul have to teach them? Well, his problem was, if I talk to them about temples, they're going to think I'm saying, well, what we need to do is build something a bit like the temple Ephesus, but obviously a bit different because it's going to be a Christian temple. So how do I explain what I want to do? Because that's not his message. His message was not, let's build another building. His message was, God is doing something, which is not to do with bricks and stones. It's to do with people. So he he, he uses language that's really important. He says, you are built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Now, if you know anything about building, you tend not to build on people. Uh, It gets you arrested. And uh, they're a bit knobbly. Now, you, you build on rock. If you go outside where the school's being built, they've laid a concrete plinth. For buildings, concrete plinths work better than people. But God, uh, Peter, Paul's saying, no, 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 I'm building something. God is building something that's not going to be made out of uh, stone or bricks. I don't think they had concrete. 
Now, God is building something. It's made out of people. Not only is it built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, but it, the cornerstone, the, uh, if you like, the, the blueprint, the, the, the thing that shapes and forms the scale and the scope of the building is the Lord Jesus. And he says, you're being built into the dwelling place of God. For Paul, building was a big concept. He uses the words related to building 26 times. And he, he needed to convey something because Paul, as a Jew, understood something awesome. Paul got his ideas from the Old Testament, which in his days was called the Bible, because they didn't have them. He was writing it in his time. But also he got ideas from Jesus. I want to share a couple of verses. Um, these verses perhaps shape my life uh, more than almost any other verse. For Paul and for Jews, the temple was an awesome thing. It wasn't just a building in Jerusalem, but it was the, the source, the focus of extraordinary global or cosmic promises. And these are two verses from prophets who spoke about what God was going to do. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. It shall come to pass, and it came to pass. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And Zechariah goes, speaking a little bit later, he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and would again choose Jerusalem. For the Jews, they believed that their temple was going to become a focus that affected the world. Now, they, they, they blew it on a regular and uh, shocking basis, but the prophets kept saying to them, no, 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 there's something coming. There is something coming of such glory that you can't imagine it. It wasn't just the temple of Solomon. But Paul also encountered Jesus. And Jesus said this in John 2, 19. He was speaking about the temple in Jerusalem, this glorious building, awesome building. Didn't get into the seven wonders of the World League, but it was, it was still good. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Jesus was speaking about the temple. There was a move where it was no longer bricks and stone there was a move from monument, which is how the Jews and the ancient world thought, to movement. And it's so important for Paul to get this across to the Ephesians, for Paul to speak to us this morning. God is not in the business of building a monument. 
if God was into building monuments, we should not be doing what we're doing today in Elton. It would make much more sense to let's invest in Sidcup. Let's draw people to Sidcup so the building at Sidcup becomes a place of pilgrimage where people can go and say, isn't God amazing? Look at the building the Christians have built. God must be awesome because that's how the ancient world thought. No, God's saying, I'm not about a monument. I, I like cathedrals, but actually I think in their attempt to glorify God, Past generations have tried to do it through something static and tangible and missed the point that what Jesus was doing is saying, it's my body, my body. The promise in Isaiah was not, uh, they they missed it. They they saw, the, the Jews understood. This prophet meant that people would have to get on their ponies and their donkeys and make big journeys to Jerusalem. God's purpose is that the temple that is the body of Jesus would fill the earth so people didn't have to make a a journey. The type of church that Paul was instructing the Ephesians and the others who received the letter to build was, this is what you're involved in. You're not to build a monument. God is making you into a movement. I just want to make two observations which I'm going to Uh, hang some thoughts around. I think most of us understand this idea of we don't go to church. We've been around people who've taught the word of God faithfully that what happens this morning is not church. It's a church meeting. And the church does not magically form at around about 11 o'clock. And then it suddenly dissolves whenever we finish. The church comes from its scattered places, where you live, where you go to work, where you go to school, and we come together as church. And then, when we get hungry and we think we can't bear it anymore, we, we go home again, but we, stop, we don't stop being church. This is church. God is about a movement, not a monument. We are now, this is the difficult bit for us, we are now that thing that Isaiah prophesied. Now, I grew up being shaped by two stories. I was, uh, I'm blessed. I, I was brought into a saving relationship with Jesus at a young age. Uh, I don't know how young I was. I was around about five. And, and quite early on, God began to reveal to me this wonderful passage. I saw the Isaiah passage, this idea that the work of God would fill the earth, that people would not have to travel miles, but somehow there would be a demonstration of God in every place. And I was gripped by the story of Star Wars. Now, the difficulty is the two stories are wildly different. You see, I was gripped by an understanding of a worldwide church. And for me, I saw it in the future. I looked at the Isaiah passage and the Zechariah passage. That, oh, God, will you do it one day? I went to church, but I thought, my church doesn't look anything like what I see God promising to do. Therefore, the activity of God spoken of in Isaiah has to be something in the future. I think my 70, when, when I was in my teens, I, I began to think this. 
think I was wrong? The thing that Isaiah promised. The hit house of the Lord, where the nations run to it, is what God's begun in us. Star Wars, different story. I was gripped by Star Wars. I loved the first three episodes. I didn't quite enjoy I guess if you're a purist, I enjoyed episodes four, five, and six, which came out between one, two, and three. And then you got to the, the more recent ones. I've endured the horror of Jar Jar Binks. Having lived with the glory of the early Star Wars editions. And you see, if you're a Star Wars fan, I think you're right to look for something in the future. To be honest, the last film didn't do it for me. I'm still looking into the future. There's one day going to be a film that lives up to the Star Wars promise. But with the Isaiah passage, we cannot put it into the future. I believe God's calling us as a people involved in seeing Europe change as part of a worldwide family of churches of all sorts of names, of seeing the world change, we've got to stop looking at our clocks, stop looking at our calendars, and think, I wonder when God's going to do a glorious thing, because he's begun to do a glorious thing. I want to prove it to you. I want to argue with my teenage self who would say, no, 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 it can't be that. Well, the answer is simply, we're a church full of non-Jews. When else were the Gentiles going to come in? The promise was, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. That was a sign that the nations would run to it. It happened in the latter days. Now, my 16, 17-year-old think was, well, that must be the latter days, must be coming at some time. I hope God will bring, I hope I'm alive in the latter days. The problem is, at Pentecost, Peter stood up and said, as the Spirit was poured out, what you see in here is to fulfill what the prophet Joel said. In the last days, it's exactly the same word in Hebrew. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit. God has put me through a journey of saying, stop putting the activity of God into the future. Stop looking to your calendar. I wonder when God's going to do it. Stop looking at your watch and say, I wonder when it will be. God says the calling on your life is not to look at your clocks or your calendar. The call upon you as a people is to adjust the thermostat. You see, if this is the thing that God has promised, it ought to be more glorious. I don't know whether you're like me this morning, but if there was a thermostat around here, I would want to adjust it. The temperature in this room is not one that I am particularly comfortable with. Uh, am I alone in that? Can, can I hear an amen? Um, and yet, thank you. <laughs> That's my Pentecostal impression. Um, and yet, week by week, we have meetings where the gospel is preached and we don't see people coming to Jesus. Well, what do you expect? It's a difficult time to preach the gospel. Militant atheism is on the rise. God said, no. There's a thermostat. Are you comfortable with people not being saved week by week? Are you comfortable 
with people not being healed week by week? Are you going to put the activity of God into the future? It's a call upon us, church, to adjust the thermostat and say, oh God, the worship that we were led into this morning was about a God who is king. Gordon brought the prophecy at the end. This is who I am. The very name of God, I am. This is what he's like. Are you comfortable with people not being saved amongst us week by week? Or should we come before this God and say, I take you at your word. Will you do the things that you've promised? See, we can get used to things the way they are. But God was saying, no, get used to the fact that I reign. I'm a prayer answering God. I seek no one's permission. It's time to adjust the thermostat. You see, the issue is not our faith. The issue is the worth of Jesus. He is the cornerstone. Now, what that means is the building is shaped by the cornerstone. How much is Jesus worth? How much value does the Father put on his own son? He puts on more than we see. I do not believe that we are currently the expression of the full worth of the Lord Jesus. His worth should lead us to pray. His worth should cause us to say, oh God, there is more merit in the son of God. The son of God's life should not be that a handful of people meet in Elton. The worth of the Son of God is that cities are shaken to their core and thousands upon thousands. Let's not be content with putting a value on the Son of God that says, this is okay, we could get comfortable. I refuse to get comfortable with anything less than something that stops the people of God. As a a verse in the psalm says, the kings of the earth will walk past Zion and be amazed. It's not about a monument, but there's a movement. So I want to apply this to us. You see, temples always had an image attached to them. I was worried I missed this out, but I've got that image. See, you wouldn't believe the effort. I, that went into drawing that, <laughs> particularly the Bible history online bit. Um, this is a, a coin from Ephesus. It's got Greek on it. Shows you that it's old. Uh, but in the middle bit there, that, that's Artemis or, or Diana. Temples were not just a place of worship. Temples were a place of identity. Who? Do you remember the, uh, the, there's an awful program, I can't remember what it's called, but who would live in a house like this? Who, who's, who, which God would live in a temple like this? Well, it's Artemis. God has made this temple that he's making us a place of witness. It is a place of worship, and I would never want to take it away. But God has chosen to so dwell in us that people discover what he's like because they see us. That's the point. God said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to make you in my image. The work of Christ in us by the Holy Spirit is to conform us to the image of Christ. One of the reasons for doing that is so people say, ah, that's what God's like. 
There was a huge industry in Ephesus. If you read Acts, there were silversmiths and they would make little temples that people would buy and they would take back to wherever they lived so that the temple of Diana or Artemis would go everywhere. God has done a work in us that people can find out what God is like because made into the image of God, we live in our roads, we live in our streets, we work where we work, we go to school where we go, we shop where we are so that people can discover what Jesus is like. I think it's time to adjust the thermostat because people are not discovering at the moment what Jesus is like because they meet me. And we can go, well, what do you expect? Look at you. I can stand up here and say, what do you expect? Look at you. No. It's time to turn up the thermostat and say, God has brought us together to demonstrate what he is like. And it's actually part of us being together that's part of the process. We learn to be like Jesus by mixing with one another. We can keep a, a very English uh, distance. It's not going to work. God has made us one new man. That as we learn to rub up against each other, as we learn not to take offense, as we learn to reach out to people who look different to us, who speak different to us, differently to us. <clears throat> um, we learn it here to demonstrate Jesus out there. We have to turn up, therefore, the thermostat of what it means to be amongst one another. Well, I come on a Sunday. If I'm feeling really keen, I might go to a community. It's not about going to something. It's about opening up your life. Say, will you speak into me when I offend you? Do not do the polite thing and distance yourself. Will you trust what God is doing in us? That you come to me and say, actually, when you did that, it offended me. I'm so sorry. If you hang around us, you are going to be offended. It happens in every church. We have to work through this and say, actually, I'm going to press through on this. We have to be good at forgiving one another, but we can't do it at a polite distance. We have to turn up the thermostat of what it be, means to belong to one another. You see, there are battles that are being fought for holiness in each of our lives. I think are being lost because we're trying to fight the battle for holiness on our own. The statistics of men, Christian men, who have problems with pornography are horrifying. Because it's a secret thing. Who is praying for my holiness? Well, that's your business. No, 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 no. My holiness is your business. Most men here, I think there's nobody here, no man here who is too old to have a problem with lust. We don't pray. I'm sure they're much better than that. No, no, no. Let's pray. Let's pray for holiness. 
Let's pray for holy living. Let's pray for godliness in the private place. Let's not be content with, oh, let's be polite and sparkly clean at a distance. No, no, no. Let's fight for one another. There's a glorious picture in the book of Nehemiah where they were building the walls. And they built with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And they fought and they built for one another. If the enemy comes where you are, we will gather where you are. We have to stop seeing Christian life as me and Jesus. I need you to pray into my life. I need you to confront me. I need you to speak into my life so that the people out there can encounter Jesus more in me. You need me to speak into your life. You need me to uh, not just be doing things on a Sunday. We need to be committed. We need to turn up the thermostat. If you're battling with issues, if you know that there is an overtaking sin, do not battle it on your own. The the things at stake are too important. There are victories for us, but we have to work them through together. We have to work out our faults and our flaws together. We need to be a people who are shaped by Holy Spirit activity. We need to turn up the thermostat. I thought this morning was glorious. I just loved it. It spoke so much about uh, what I wanted to preach on. But let's not go, wow, that was great. No, no, no. Let's turn up the thermostat for next week. God, will you come in more power? Will you come? Because I don't think we've just reached the limit where God says, oh, I don't have any more. He's God. It was good today. It really was. Let's turn up the thermostat and say, God, we want to see more of your Holy Spirit. I'm not content. I'm not content until we see people healed amongst us. I'm not content until I see people being saved. The glorious picture was that people would be so attracted by what they saw of the temple. They said, surely God is amongst you. There are multitudes of people who have yet to encounter Jesus, who are going to encounter, but let's not be content with anything less than more and more and more of God. Somebody once said, we owe the world an encounter with Jesus. We do. We truly do. And I think we've got used to living in our time, just as I got used to living in the 60s with two television channels. We actually have four little buttons on the television. We never knew what the other two were for. We've got two. What more do you possibly want? There's more that God has for us. But we press through it together. Thanks for listening to this talk from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk.